Good morning, church. You notice in that hymn, it says the uh, tune comes from the Genevan Psalter. That was the Psalter of John Calvin at Geneva, who introduced music into his church that he thought the children would like. And uh, they taught the children how to sing, and they were so sprightly that they were sometimes called the Geneva Jigs. And um, so uh, that little rocking tune that we just sang uh, is very Presbyterian. And speaking of music, we're appreciative of our choir, are we not? And their leadership, thank you for singing. Tonight will be the Festival of Carols. Last week we were led in Christmas music by our instrumentalists, and this week, uh, this evening, by our, uh, our, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate chorally with our own singing of carols and with them as well. Please join us back here at 6 o'clock. Please turn with me in your Bible, like we've been doing, to two passages of Scripture. The last, the first one is in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And uh, the next one is Luke chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, back at the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, for those of you joining us for the first time or visiting us, we have been studying through the book of Revelation chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we're into chapter 20, but uh, we have come back to chapter 14. I skipped over these verses so that I could preach through them at Advent. And because there's a theme here that we don't want to forget, that there is an eternal gospel, that the, that the good news of Jesus Christ is, is uh, not something that just came about in the New Testament, but it has been eternally in the heart of God. And so we've been looking at these verses in Revelation 14 and then cross-referencing them back to a more traditional Christmas text. And taking an outline that we find in the, in the book of Revelation and superimposing it on this New Testament text so that it gives it new and fresh light, new and fresh light to text that we have become very familiar with in the church over time. We want to continually be surprised by the joy and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'll begin reading in Revelation 14, verse 6, and we'll go down through verse 12. And then we'll turn back to Luke chapter 2, verse 22, which is where Jesus is brought into the temple, as I said earlier, and greeted by Simeon the prophet. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 6, but we're going to concentrate on studying verses 9 through 12. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And then verse 9, another angel A third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now back to Luke chapter 2. Some of you think I read the wrong passage from Revelation 14. That's not very Christmassy about the beast and the mark of the beast and so forth, but I want you to realize what good news this judgment is to those who are followers of Christ. Remember, we've said Revelation is about Jesus winning. With that in mind, we look at this welcome of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, and I want you to think about Simeon as he lives in the Roman Empire under the oppression, the darkness of that reign, and think about how good the good news of Revelation 14 might be to him. We begin reading in verse 22 of Luke 2. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Comfort, consolation. I had a friend in Augusta who uh, we got to know each other by uh, a, a quarterly prayer meeting we had it was a gathering of business leaders and, and uh, pastors and community leaders and politicians. Every quarter we would gather and we would pray in the name of Jesus for God to heal and prosper our city, for His glory to bring shalom to our city. We got to know each other very well, though we came from very different backgrounds. And one of, my, one of those friends was a businessman. He was a fine woodworker. He was a furniture maker, very high-end furniture maker, very skilled craftsman. His name was Gary. Gary was a, was, um, was a, a born-again, 
charismatic Roman Catholic, contagious in his evangelistic zeal, his love, just drew you in, man of prayer. We got to know each other pretty well. And he had a tremendous testimony. He told me his testimony, and then eventually put it in a book, and, and uh, he, he begins the book this way. He says that he, in the early 70s, was a home builder in Atlanta, and very successful. He was building those very large, impressive homes in Buckhead in the early 70s, and he did very, very well. And then he spied a piece of property that nobody was willing to touch. Uh, it was uh, 55 feet above the peak of the tallest house that he had built thus far. And uh, nobody wanted to build. They thought it was unbuildable. But he, being the brilliant man he said that he was at the time, determined that he could build a house on that peak. And uh, so he bought the property and he uh, uh, started clearing it for his greatest work, his magnum opus. He said it was going to rival anything ever built by Frank Lloyd Wright. He soon discovered the real reason nobody built on it because it had a gigantic boulder in the middle of it. He had to dynamite and dig and rent very expensive equipment, and he was already behind budget before he even started to lay the foundation. But nevertheless, he went on he was, uh, he, was, he was nervous, but he went on, built the house, and then the last thing he had to do was to pour the driveway and, and uh, had a beautiful wooded lot. It was like a forest that led up to this mountain, and he didn't want to disturb the trees. So he said, what I'm going to do is build that driveway straight up the side of that hill. He poured it twice as thick so that it didn't slide off the mountain, and it went almost straight up. His foreman called him one day after it had dried, and he said, uh, boss, we can't get our work trucks up the, up the hill, up the driveway. Well, it's because they're trucks. We don't intend for trucks to go up there anyway. A car should make it fine. Well, why don't you come try it? He had his fancy, large sports car at the time, and uh, he turned calmly into the driveway, tried to make it up. The car didn't have enough power to get up it. Backed up a little bit, gave it a little bit of a running start, didn't get any farther. Backed all the way up to the end of the neighborhood, got a running start, hit the driveway at 90 miles an hour, made it up to the top, got air, airborne, and sank in the mud up to his chassis and started to weep. His world was crashing around him. Everything that he had had confidence in, his ingenuity, his brilliance, the power of him, of his, uh, of his uh, uh, drive to make things happen, his money, his past success, everything he had put his hope in crashing around him. This was going to ruin him. You feel that way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> In need of comfort, he needed consolation. Maybe you have come to the end of your resources. Maybe the life that you charted out for yourself and that you've tried to live in your own resourcefulness is you're seeing that it's crashing around you. All that you, all the insights that you thought that you had, the way life was supposed to continue on, that's not working that way anymore. 
If that's not the way you feel now, it will be the way you feel someday. God will see to it. And when He does, you should feel very loved because it's to bring us to the real place of life. We said that this whole series is called the eternal gospel because we're focusing on things that God has always been but are being revealed very clearly in the person of Jesus. God has always had in his heart to reconcile from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God has always had in his heart to use his power and his might to redeem a people for himself. And God has always had in his heart the desire, the passion to bring consolation and comfort to you. Maybe you find that not only uh, the place where you are, but that idea impossible to believe because you have done this to yourself, like this builder. This is not something that's been put on you. Maybe where you are today in need of comfort is something you have done to yourself. You've dug this hole that you've fallen into. And so you say, God may offer comfort, but He only offers it to people who are worthy of it. Or God offers comfort, but only begrudgingly because He had different plans for the world. But this is the eternal gospel. God has from all of eternity determined that He would create a people whom He could redeem with the blood of His Son that He might comfort them and bring them consolation that leaves them without a shadow of a doubt that He is the God of all mercies and the Father of all comfort. What do you do to, to get that? What do you need to do? No matter whether you're in need of it, feel the need of it, or whether the need is coming, this is what you must do according to the text, the inferences from the text in front of us, number one, you must, and I must, acknowledge the consternation of deceit. Look at Romans, I mean, Revelation 10, <laughs> Revelation 14, verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying, if anyone worships a beast and its image and receives a mark on his head or on his hand, he also will drink the wrath of of God's wine poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. You acknowledge the consternation of deceit. You say, I don't know what the word consternation means. Well, if you take uh, all of your, your discomfort all of your disorientation, your disillusionment, your fear, your anxiety, your concerns, wrap them all up. They'll all fit within this big word, consternation. And consternation comes when we have put our trust in anyone, anything besides Jesus, the comforter of Israel. And to do that, to put our comfort, our trust in anything besides or in addition to Jesus Christ is, our text tells us effectively, to worship the beast. 
And when we studied the beast for the first time and that number, we said it's not really that hard to figure out because in the Bible, the number seven refers to God's perfection and the number six refers to man's imperfection. One of our members, a careful student of Scripture, responded the day I preached on that text, and he said, uh, you said the number seven represents perfection. I like your idea. If this number represents God, then the number six represents man, who in the created realm is most likely like him, but, but lower in intrinsic value. So he said, I am reminded of two things. I'm reminded on the one hand of Isaiah 6, where the seraphim called out to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And I'm also reminded of the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras who said, man is the measure of all things. So he said, if we could paraphrase what is occurring in the book of Revelation, this is what we would read. The seraphim are crying out, seven, seven, seven. And Protagoras is protesting and saying, no, six, six, six. Fallen humans try to elevate themselves above God. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number of a man, it is six, six, six. The question in front of you and your discomfort is, in your consternation, is it because you have been deceived? Not that you're living in a cult, not that you're following a cult or, or the, the zodiac or, or putting all your faith in the latest trends, but rather you are claiming to be a Christian at the same time in your heart of hearts, you're saying, you know, I, I'm very good at this at this life thing. I'm very smart. I can figure it out. And if everybody else would just listen to me, then life would go better for them too. You know what that's called? Six, six, six. What are the results of following the beast? of arrogant pride, self-trust. What, are, what, are the, what, are the, what happens when you, when you find that that doesn't work and then you sink into depression because you still believe that you are the one who has to get yourself out of this mess and you don't know what to do? What are the results of living in that kind of deceit? They're found in this text and they're found in the life of my friend Gary. They are anger and restlessness and torment. Anger, restlessness, and torment. In Revelation 14, it says he's going to pour out on them the wine of the cup of his wrath. You say, well, that's God's anger. Yes, but our anger, our anger over as a result of living in deceit is anticipatory of God's coming anger. It's a foretaste. But because here's what anger is. Most anger, not all, but most anger is this. Most anger is when someone does not behave 
or think the way you want them to. Or life doesn't work the way you want it to. You get angry. Now, God gets angry. His wrath, His judgment will be at the great day. He will be angry at those who have refused to receive His free gift of salvation, have refused to that point that they now face Him in judgment, and He will be angry because what He wanted to do was to save them to comfort them. He did not want them to become like this. It was not his intention. And so he's angry that they are not what he wants them to be. But that is holy anger because what he wants us to be, what he wants for us is always the absolute best. It is holy. There are occasions in our lives when we get angry over things that are in, that are, that are, uh, in the heart of God. But most of our anger is that people and life are not doing what we want them to do. Doesn't that explain most of our anger? Doesn't explain most of our anger over the last two years? Doesn't explain the anger that you have today? If that preacher, if that person over there, if that politician, if this society, if those doctors would only do what I know is best, everything would be much better, and I am angry about it. Anger will consume you. The best thing to do is to voice your anger to someone you trust and determine then whether it's from God or not. Here's what you will understand. Someone will either say, you know, that reminds me of what God says in His Word. You're angry about the things that God says He's angry about. Things that dehumanize others, and you're, you're, you're angry because someone is not living in God's best. That sounds a lot like God. Or they will say, you are self-pitiful, or you're being selfish or self-centered. That's pathetic <laughs> if it's a real friend. My friend, Gary, was angry. He said he was ultimately angry at God though he had never called on his name. And though he had never called on his name, he always knew he was there. And so, like many of us, he blamed God for his troubles. The second thing we find in our, in our uh, deceit, self-trust, or trusting anything but Christ, is restlessness. The text warns in Revelation 14 that those who follow the ways of man, who set their, their focus on this world and, and, and your own ingenuity and, and whatever else in this world you find to trust in, are, there will be no rest for them day or night. My friend experienced that. He said he was sleepless. All he had around him was devastation, humiliation, fear, hopelessness. His doctor put him put him finally on tranquilizers to try to get to sleep. That didn't work either. A third thing we can experience is torment. That's, why, that's the word used in Revelation 14. They will be restless. They will be angry. They will experience the wrath of God's cup, and they will be tormented day and night. They will be persecuted and destroyed by the evil one. Bible says that that destruction begins right now. Doesn't have to wait until judgment. The devil is a destroyer. My friend said that 
he would often be driving along in his sports car and he would hear a voice in his head saying, cash it in, cash it in, meaning turn into the abutment or jump off, trail off of the bridge, kill yourself so at least your family will have the benefit of your life insurance policy. That's what following the beast is. That's what following self-centeredness is. There's no peace in that. A friend of mine was once uh, sitting with Dr. D. James Kennedy, for whom uh, Samuel used to uh, work in South Florida, the pastor there, and he was uh, a, f- a famous, a very uh, a diligent evangelist. They were sitting at a restaurant one day, and he had struck up a conversation with the, the waitress, and he was, he was uh, starting to share his testimony with her and asking her uh, who she trusted in. And when she said, well, I, th- I think I'm a pretty good person, I'll, I'll probably get to heaven because I've, I've done mostly the right things, he, he picked up two butter knives off of the table, and he said, you know, the Bible says there are only two kinds of religion. There is the I religion, and he held one butter knife up like this. He said, there's I religion. And he took the other one, and he crossed it, and he said, or there's cross religion. There's only peace and comfort in cross religion. It is the despair not only of your own ability to earn your righteousness, but on your own ability to get through this life and to walk the way Christ wants you to walk. It starts at the cross. It starts kneeling. It starts by kneeling and giving up there and saying, not only use your blood to cleanse me of my sins, but put your cross on my back so that I am daily crucified to myself and I'm asking only, what does the Lord want me to do? That's the way of peace. That's comfort. That's the next thing to do. The first thing is to acknowledge that very bad news that we've just covered. And when you do and you look up to Christ, what you will find is the very, very good news that Simeon exclaimed, this is the consolation I have been waiting for all my life. This is the comfort promised to Israel from the beginning of the world. This is the comfort that has been dwelling in the the heart of my gracious God for all of eternity. He is here. I can hold him in my hands. He has put flesh on his words. He has always said to us, comfort. He said to our prophets, comfort, comfort my people. His words are true, but but now they're made tangible. Now they're made existential. It's incarnated. It's personified in Jesus. Comfort has shown up. And comfort has shown up for you today, friend, in this very sanctuary. This cross, yes, as he promised to Mary, will bring the the, the fall of many. That is, those who refuse to acknowledge or refuse to bow before it, refuse to take it on their shoulder. But it will be the rise of of many more. He'll raise you up from where you are. And when He comforts you, as He comforts you, this is what you will experience in a long-term, deep, and profound way, the kind of peace that Lucy told us about, a peace that transcends the burned cookies (laughs) and… and the crying babies 
and the even weightier things of life. And so anger will be replaced with gratitude. And restlessness will be replaced with peace and torment will be replaced with blessing. Anger is replaced with gratitude. You know, in Revelation 1 where the the Bible says that every human being knows that there is a God. We know that there is that there is a glorious God. We know something about His divine nature, and we know something about His eternal power. And though we know Him in our flesh before Christ saves us, or unless He saves us, we don't honor Him as the God we know Him to be. They do not honor Him as God, the Bible says, nor do they give thanks. In other words, one of the chief characteristics of those who live in their own ingenuity, by their own resources, is that they do not give thanks. Is there much gratitude in our world? Or is it instead what I don't have, what I'm dissatisfied with, what I wish you didn't have so I could have it? But the proof of the regenerating power and presence of Christ in someone is to give thanks even when thanks is counterintuitive. My friend Gary said that just as when he thought that nothing could get any worse, his wife invited him to a Christian retreat. So the only thing he could think of that would be worse than bankruptcy than would be to spend a whole weekend with Christians. But to keep his marriage, he went, and he said the the most powerful thing of the whole thing was he was surrounded by people who were thankful. But these were people, he said, that he didn't. They didn't have as much money as he did. They didn't. They weren't as smart as he was. They weren't as accomplished as he thought he was, and that they were thankful. The second thing that will happen when you give your life to Christ, when you come back to Christ, as we must over and over, is that peace will replace your restlessness. They had a prayer meeting in that retreat, and, and uh, they asked if anybody had any prayer requests. He said he had never thought he would ask for, he didn't like prayer. He didn't think he'd ask for prayer, but he found himself saying, please pray that I can sleep. And the people immediately gathered around him, put their hands on him, and prayed that he would be given the gift of sleep. On their way home that night, his wife was turning into the pharmacy to get his tranquilizers refilled. And uh, he said, let's try this prayer thing. Let's just drive on by had the first full night's sleep he had had in months. Restlessness will be replaced with peace and and torment will be replaced with blessing. He said it was also it was also shocking to him to have a one-on-one meeting with the pastor of the retreat. He said this man was was so poor he didn't even own his own home. This man didn't have anything that he counted as as valuable and yet he said There was a deep and profound happiness. The man had suffered, the man had difficulties, but he had a deep and profound happiness that he knew nothing about. And so he gave up and he asked Christ to be his savior. He asked Christ to be his comforter. Some of you say, I've already done that. Yes, yes. But we have to keep coming back to Christ. 
because it's not natural. What is natural for us is to turn back to our resources, to turn back to what we find that we can trust in. And so whether you're, it's for the first time or the thousandth time, I call you to come back to Christ, the Comforter. Here's what my friend Gary did next. A new happy man, now bankrupt, went back to that place and he said, the first act I had to do as a Christian was to tear up that driveway and replace it with a switchback, even though he didn't have any money. But he tore it out. You can imagine it got the attention of his neighbors who were the elite in Atlanta. The uh, owner of the Atlanta Falcons walked over. The CEO of AT&T walked down the street. They said, what in the world are you doing? He said, I'm tearing up this driveway. I'm going to replace it because Jesus has saved me. Seems like a non sequitur. But for him, it made perfect sense. Jesus has saved me. He's replaced my fears with comfort. He has replaced my torment with peace. And that peace is profoundly deeper even than this concrete I poured. And my friend Gary told me, you know, George, I've never had a bad day since. Now, I knew his life. He had what many would call bad days. Intense suffering, losses. But he also remembered what it felt like to try to face the worst things of life in his own resources. The despair of that. And he knew that no matter what he didn't understand about his suffering, he could understand this, that the peace of God is deeper still. And he was in the hands of a sovereign Christ who would lead him in a good way and someday would right all the wrongs of the world, even as it promised in Revelation 14. I call you to come to him, to lay down yourself, your agenda, your insistence that the world bend your way. Kneel at the cross, take it on your shoulder. And in that, and in that servanthood to Christ, you'll find liberty and comfort. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you revealed to us in your person that had been in the heart of your Father from all eternity. Freshly apply it to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.